if you think about Alexander the Great, you know, perhaps one of the richest people in the world at his time, you know, conqueror of massive parts of the known civilized world at that time, even a lower middle class person in some random city has unimaginably more wealth than Alexander the Great had in the sense that they can buy any food they want at any time, whether it's in season or out of season. They can watch any of the greatest shows from anywhere in the world. Alexander the Great had to summon people to show up at his place and tune their instruments and then play music for him. Otherwise, he, he had no ability to listen to music at, at any time. No matter how poor you are, you can just grab a phone and watch any movie that's ever been made. And so the same thing I think is going to be true from what happens with AI is that all of us are going to have an army of assistants that are going to be able to assist us. And, any single thing you can imagine, we're going to have AIs the same way that Tim Ferriss does in the very near future. Hello, I'm Somi Aryan. I'm a tech philosopher and the founder of Impeak. My guest on today's podcast is Hasib Horeshi, investor, software engineer, author, former poker pro, and a managing partner at Dragonfly Crypto Fund. This is part two of my interview series with a number of VCs in the Web3 space, where we navigate the current state of the market. And in particular, we look at Web3 social applications in the context of the ever-changing technological landscape. I met Hasib at the Consensus Conference, where he gave an excellent talk about AI and Web3, and I just had to invite him on the pod. So without further ado, let's dive right in. All right, Hasib. So I was just telling you that I've been listening to you for so long. <laughs> you know, I feel like I know you really well. This is the thing about content, right? Like you listen to people who have a presence on the web and then you feel like you know them and then you go to a conference and you're like, you feel like you've heard so much of what they have to say. So, so thank you for all the content that you put out there. But today I wanted to treat this podcast recording pretty much like, you know, a, a mentorship session. So, you know, you're talking to an entrepreneur building in this difficult market that we are in right now. So if you were in my shoes, where there's all these difficult things happening in the market. So, you know, we've, mm -hmm. we've had a very, very hard 2022. And then uh, 2023, it seems to be like all about regulations. Now there's the rate hikes, there's not so much appetite in the web three investment. And then there's also the fact that the general attention has gone away from Web3, now a lot of it into AI, increasingly into AR and VR. So, you know, if you're talking to an entrepreneur who is trying to build something in the cross-section of Web3, AI, and all these other technologies, but primarily with that Web3 ethos in mind, what's the first thing you will tell them in terms of how they should just manage their nerves, <laughs> you know, manage and hold their nerves? So, well, first, thank you for the very kind intro. Uh, I don't know that I have all the wisdom that maybe you're imagining I have about this because the, the reality is that we're treading uncharted waters. You know, nobody really knows what the next 12 months or the next 24 months is going to look like, uh, including investors. Investors don't know either. We're also trying to figure it out in real time. It's, it's, it is, I'll, I'll say this before I directly answer your question, that it's a strange time that founders are talking to me about FOMC meetings and rate hikes, right? Mm -hmm. We're in this weird moment where all of a sudden everybody in this industry is talking about central banks and macro and interest rates when really that, that's very abnormal. That's not something that should be happening. It's a sign that something has kind of um, really missed the mark in the industry that we're not, you know, kind of focused almost entirely on just building great products and attracting customers. 
Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Obviously, a lot of stuff has gone wrong from a macro perspective that's unprecedented in you know the last two, three decades. Uh, but also just the fact that regulatory stuff is so significant in this industry because in large part because the U.S. has done such a terrible job at making clear what the rules of the road are for the crypto industry. So what does that mean for a founder? So the first thing I would say for a founder is that the, the number one way to fail at a startup is to get distracted. And it is very, very easy in an environment like this to get distracted and to think that like, oh, my job is to follow FAMC meetings or my job is to you know, pay attention to what this Twitter influencer is saying about what's gonna happen, you know, this shit coin is gonna go down or gonna go up or whatever. Um, or even for that matter, paying too close attention to the trials and tribulations of US Congress and regulation or who wins the presidency. All these things obviously do matter for how crypto gets treated in the US and ultimately how crypto gets treated globally. But the core thing of, am I building a product that people want? That core thing has absolutely nothing to do with interest rates, it has nothing to do with who's president, it has nothing to do with whether or not Congress passes a such and such law. It is the very simple thing of, is the thing I'm building the thing that people want? And if it's not there, it doesn't matter who's president and it doesn't matter what the interest rate is. So uh, now once you, once you get to scale, once you start worrying about, okay, now I have customer deposits and my money transmitter, blah, 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 blah. There, I'm not to, this is not to say that those things don't matter. They obviously do, which is why there's so much conversation and so much questions about how these things are going to wind up. But as a founder, especially an early stage founder, you should see your job as simple. And your very simple job is create a great product. That's such a good answer. And uh, I really resonate with that. I literally just zoom out. It's not just about regulations. It's also the distractions where people are like, oh my God, now Apple has announced this thing and everybody's going to think about AR and VR and nobody's going to care about crypto anymore or Web3. But when I zoom out, I see a use case for Web3. You know, one of the things that you said, I think it was a talk that you gave at Near Protocol, if I'm not mistaken, where you were talking about how Web3 technology and, and crypto is actually so needed. You know, we have AI agents doing things mm -hmm. because AI agents can't directly interact with fiat system. So, so can you That's go right. a little bit more into that? Because I thought that was such an interesting conversation. Like when in a world where we have AI agents actually doing things on, on the web with money, mm -hmm. the money that they're going to use is going to be blockchain-based money. Let's go a little bit deeper into that. Many people find it tempting to think of technology as being very zero-sum. So the idea is, okay, we were crypto, we were kind of the pretty girl at the party, and then all of a sudden, crypto's not cool anymore, Sam Bankman-Fried kind of, you know, he took a shit in the sink, and so now we're not invited to the party anymore, and now AI is the hot one, or... You know, AR is a hot one, Apple's doing this, this person's doing that, blah, blah, blah. And I think this is generally, when you look back through history, it's the wrong way to understand what's happening. Uh, so w one good example of that is my description of how I think AI and crypto are going to intersect. Now, I think there'll be many ways in which they intersect, but I think, honestly, probably the biggest one is that AIs are going to use crypto rather than using traditional fiat rails. Now, why will they do that? So the API of money is a very old API. It was built a very long time ago on assumptions that were very normal at the time that they were created, right? Basically for thousands of years, there have only ever been three things that can own money. If you're a person, you can own money. 
If you're a company, you can own money. And if you're a government, you can own money. If you're not a person, you're not a government, and you're not a company, you cannot have money. There is no way to have a bank account. There is no way to have something in your name. There is no concept of a non-human, corporate, governmental body, entity that can own anything. It just doesn't exist in contract law. There is no, there's no room for this. You have to reinvent the laws. You have to reinvent taxation. You have to reinvent social security numbers. You have to reinvent anti-money laundering. All this stuff doesn't work in a world where you have non, you have a new fourth category. Well, we're about to have that fourth category. And that fourth category is going to be non-human agents, most likely AIs. Now, uh, you imagine an AI writing an email, which already they can. Imagine AI writing an email to JP Morgan Chase saying, excuse me, I'd like to open a bank account. I want to engage in something, you know, some online service or I'm trying to negotiate with another party or something, right? There are so many situations in, that we know of in the world that require negotiating access to a shared scarce resource. Like let's say we're, we're two AIs and we're trying to figure out how to best use this message bus. We're trying to figure out how much hard drive space do each of us use in this in the shared hard drive. Or we're trying to decide, we're two self-driving cars. We're trying to decide who is going to get to overtake the other one uh, because one of us needs to get to work faster than the other one. The other one is you know, not, not, not that bothered. Um, well, the way that we solve all these problems, we invented a general purpose solution as human beings. And that general purpose solution is money. That is how we price opportunity costs. And AIs will also have opportunity costs, and they will also run into many categories of this problem, and they will want to use money, but they can't. And so what is the money that AIs are going to use? The answer is very simple. It's going to be crypto. Why? Because crypto was built to be used by machines. Any machine can custody a private key. Any machine can figure out how to write a blockchain transaction. They cannot necessarily decide how to get access to a JP Morgan Chase account but they can absolutely decide how to use a private key. And so this stuff is going to race technologically way ahead of the legislation, way ahead of the regulation. All this stuff is going to happen on its own. Um, and so that's where I think the intersection between crypto and AI is going to be most significant. And to be clear, I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. I think it like you should be scared. You should have a healthy uh, discomfort with the fact that, oh shit, when AI show up, they're gonna have a whole monetary system to plug in. They're gonna have a whole economy ready to go. Um, it's part of the reason why I think there, there is good reason to be concerned about what happens with AI, because we've built such a fertile landscape, uh, such a fertile playground for them to enter into and to start pushing up against things. You know, you could imagine if we'd built AI 20 years ago, general purpose human level intelligence, and there was, okay, well, you know, you plug in a machine to the wall and it just thinks, but there's nothing else it can really do, right? Well, that's not the world we live in today. The, the world we live in today, as soon as you plug in that AI into the wall, there is literally everything that it can do. Every single thing that human beings do is now connected to the internet. And now we also have a financial system that is completely internet sovereign, internet native. That is what I think is going to be so powerful about the intersection of crypto and AI. Definitely. And obviously the dangers of it is something that we hear about quite a lot and, and everybody is worried about these days. But when we think about what is Web3, I was actually explaining this to some of our early investors yesterday about why we would want to use this technology. And, you know, because when we started building it, the premise has evolved over time with how we are going to use Web3. And I was trying to explain this idea of ownership. 
and how in Web3, because of the ownership aspect, we now have an opportunity to rethink social media and, and build these new platforms around the concept of community. But the way I see it is that this community doesn't have to be just a community of humans. It can be a com community of a combination of AI and humans. So for example, one of the things I'm thinking about, you know, on LinkedIn, they give you credits to reach out to people, right? Like if you have a premium LinkedIn account, they give you these credits, they call them emails. But nobody checks those emails. It's almost like a spam box, pretty much. So one of the things I'm thinking about is how can we use this new financial system that is being uh, developed with crypto technology and then use AI to also help us optimize how we connect people. So let's say, for example, I want to reach out to Tim Ferriss and I have a very good case for him. And AI could potentially help us understand exactly what encourages a person, you know, what it is that, say, Tim Ferriss is looking for. And that's where perhaps rather than I pay LinkedIn a monthly fee and then they give me these emails that nobody reads, maybe there is a system where Tim Ferriss says, I charge this much, this many crypto, right? Yeah. Maybe not by Tim Ferriss himself. Maybe there's an AI system that looks at how busy he is, almost like a bidding system. This is what I'm thinking of building in our platform, right? This could really completely revolutionize how we do advertising. It could revolutionize how we do networking because you know then, you know, how many people you want to reach out to or who you want to reach out to. And you go exactly, you know, that just no time wasted. You go exactly to the person you want and you pay the price that you want to get in front of the person that you want. And AI can help you optimize these relationships. This will really take away the problem of spam uh, and, and, you know, time wasted. So mm -hmm. from, um, you know, from that point of view, as somebody who is like really passionate about networking and, and marketing and like really thinking about how can we turn this over its head and really completely rebuild a new system to connect people together and to enable brands to reach to the right people, you know, and all of those things, they maybe pay a slightly higher price, but they save a lot of time, which then will increase their efficiency. So I wonder whether you have thought about anything in this Web3 social area. So are you, are you familiar with a company called Earn.com? No. Okay. So I before I became a VC, I worked at a company called Earn.com that was founded by Bology. So they got acquired by Coinbase. And this, what you're describing was almost exactly the product. So it was essentially uh, an email service where you could basically set a price by which people could contact you and send you an email and get a reply. And so, you know, I remember uh, they were backed by A16Z. So like Mark Andreessen was on there and it was like a hundred bucks to write an email to Mark Andreessen, and then you could set your own price, say, I'm 50 cents, I'm $5, $10, whatever. And um, th there were a few things that were very challenging about this model. The first thing is that it, it basically meant that almost everything that you were willing, so the, the reality is if you have an inbox, right, there are some people who you'll be willing to answer for free because you like them or because you feel bad for them or because there's something interesting or there's some real collaboration that can be done. And there's some things that are really just kind of pay to play, like, you know, fill out the survey for a hundred bucks. And there is no reason why I would ever do this except if you are paying me and it's a pure transactional email, right? And there's a spectrum. Some emails are really like, oh, this heartfelt student reached out to me and I changed their life and they just want this one piece of advice and like, yes, fine, I'll, I'll give this to you. You don't have to pay me anything. Uh, and then there are other things that are like, screw you, I don't care about you, give me money. Um, 
so, so that's the first thing is that it having a uniform uh, price is very difficult because the 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 kinds of emails you get as a human being are just obviously massive right it's all human communication basically could potentially be in an email so that's the first thing that made it difficult the second thing is that for the most part the people who are willing to pay the most for you um are the people who generally, I mean, it's not always true. Like there are basically a few use cases that people were willing to pay a lot of money for. First one was recruiting. So recruiting, you know, the 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 um, uh, the margin that you make as a recruiter on recruiting somebody is very high, which is why so many of the people who pay for LinkedIn premium are recruiters. Um, and then second is like some kind of scammers. Basically uh, scammers make a lot of money if they can find the right target. Uh, and so you end up getting that, okay, I have a paid inbox. It's not just like my, my spam folder because there's, you know, it's higher quality presumably, but basically the people who are willing to do this are the shadiest people, either one, they're trying to hire me or two, they're trying to scam me. Um, and so you end up getting this kind of just weird relationship with your inbox in that you have to learn to kind of respect it or be afraid of it or whatever. Um, that's, so that's where AI comes in though. You, I, I could see AI being yeah. good at screening out some of these things that you yeah, really don't want to be interacting with. I think it with. could, it could do. And, and if you could, build that AI in combination with blockchain technology so that it's connected to your wallet activity. So -hmm. for example, on our platform, people connect their wallets and they can connect multiple wallets and it will pull the data from all the different tokens that they have, the different, you know, NFTs that they have. So it can figure out which communities you are part of. And then over Mm -hmm. time, it will build this data around your activity and, and who you are. So that can really help with the screening. I, I definitely think there are ways to improve the screening. The, the last thing I think is the, the, the most challenging one, which is that there is something about human beings that makes us recoil from putting prices on interactions. It's very, especially when it comes to the way that people are perceived, right? There are many cultures where it's ne- absolutely not okay for you to pay somebody to talk to them or to be around them or whatever. It's considered to be an incredible insult, even if you have to bring a gift and the gift must be a certain monetary amount. It can't be too much, can't be too little. There are all these like kind of unspoken rules about what you can and cannot do. But the one thing you can never do is just pay somebody money. There, there, there is something about human relationships and human interactions that makes us distrust being too transactional when it comes to relating to somebody. And it's even true for a VC, right? So, you know, I, I worked on this product like five years ago and it was it was working okay. It got some, it got, you know, especially through um, uh, 2017, it was getting pretty good amount of traction, pretty good amount of revenue. Uh, most of it being basically, you know, marketing, advertising and recruiting. Um, but the one thing is that there were a lot of people who just would not, they were not comfortable putting their names on there. And one of those people was me. I did not want people to think that the only way to reach me was by paying these money. Not because I'm going to respond to every email. I don't, you know, I get a lot of spam or I get a lot of things that I just don't have time to reply to. But it's important to me that people don't think of me as the kind of person that in order to reach me, you pay me money, right? I'd rather respond to the right person for no money and have all the people who I don't want to respond to not pay me anything. You know? Yeah. And but, it's, but very, it's, it's like, a deep part of human nature. But it's more like, I guess what I'm trying to describe is more like the NFTs, NFT model, which is more of a club type thing, right? Mm. You have these clubs, right? Like these, like, you know, small communities of, of people. Yeah. And it's like any other high-end club, 
you know, people pay right. quite a lot of money to go to, to join these clubs and uh, to be part of a yes. network. And, and totally. Yeah. I think if you can create, if you, if you can create the impression of status and the impression of exclusivity, I think that works. And that yes. is something that all human beings understand and they've understood yes. since the beginning of time is creating groups that are high status where you must be part of this group in order to do X or Y or Z. That totally works. Um, okay. I think where, where AI is going to be helpful, right? Like, let's imagine that you're writing Tim Ferriss and you want to get on Tim Ferriss's uh, uh, calendar. Tim Ferriss probably has an assistant who's reading all his emails, right? He doesn't have time to read all the kajillion emails that he gets. Um, and uh, one can imagine that, okay, his, e his assistant goes through his emails and finds like, okay, this thing is stupid. Like, yeah, this person is not helpful to us. We don't want to bother with them. And this was, ah, this could be interesting. Let's respond to this person. And they bubble it up to Tim, right? Uh, one can imagine a world where we all have that assistant because that assistant is just an AI. It's just an ML model that figures out what you care about the same way that Tim Ferriss' assistant understands what Tim Ferriss cares about. Um, and my assistant is working on my emails. Your assistant is working on your emails. Maybe even your assistant is reaching out to other people's assistants who there might be interesting collaborations that 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 can be done. Um, and so I think a, a lot of the the pain of LinkedIn is that we don't have those assistants, right? I, I don't have an assistant who reads all my emails, although I, I, I could in principle, but I find that kind of creepy. Um, but many people, many people can't, don't even have the ability to do that. And if I had a LinkedIn that was getting, you know, if I was Tim Ferriss, I would, I would absolutely need somebody to, to, to read my emails for me. Thankfully, I can still handle it myself. Um, so I, I think so much of what we're going to see is that the kinds of things that are available, and this is, this is kind of true since the, the beginning of time, right? If you think about, um, you know, the, if you think about Alexander the Great, you know, perhaps one of the richest people in the world at his time, you know, conqueror of, of massive parts of, uh, of, of the, of the known civilized world at that time. Um, even a lower middle-class person in some random city has unimaginably more wealth than Alexander the Great had in the sense that they can buy any food they want at any time, whether it's in season or out of season, they can watch any of the greatest shows from anywhere in the world. Alexander the Great had to summon people and to show up at his place and tune their instruments and then play music for him. Otherwise he, he had no ability to listen to music at, at any time. Um, we can, no matter how poor you are, you can just grab a phone to things and watch any movie that's ever been made. Um, and so the same thing I think is going to be true from what happens with AI is that all of us are going to have an army of assistants that are going to be able to assist us in any single thing you can imagine. The exact same thing I think is going to be true when it comes to managing email, managing inboxes, managing inbound and outbound. We're going to have AIs the same way that Tim Ferriss does in the very near future. A hundred percent. So in that world, if you were going to improve upon the kind of social media or, or, you know, social networking platforms that we currently have. Let's take the example of LinkedIn, LinkedIn, Discord, you know, all, all of these different platforms that are available. What's the top three things that come to your mind that you think you would change about them, that you hate about them? Um, I hate a lot about LinkedIn. So <laughs> let me see where I can start. Um, so uh, the first thing that I hate about LinkedIn is that it's just constantly trying to get me to do more things than the things that I want to do. So I know what I use LinkedIn for, which is a relatively small number of things, like know who I'm connected to, find them, see see where are they working, if they have a new job, whatever, that that kind of stuff, right? It's sort of like for at least my use case where I use LinkedIn is basically a resume crawler. And that's basically it. Um, 
Whereas LinkedIn is constantly yelling at me, it's this person's birthday. You know, look at this thing. Oh, this thing is going viral. Here's a blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't, I don't need any of that from you. There are other places where I can get that. Um, so that's one thing that really annoys me. Uh, the second thing about LinkedIn, of course, is just the spam, the incredible, incredible amount of spam that I get on LinkedIn with very little way to control it. You, you, could, you could ask the question of like, look, uh, I wish that LinkedIn, instead of getting paid by recruiters to spam me, that I got passed through some of the income from those recruiters spamming me, right? Why is LinkedIn taking all the money? Now that said, <laughs> I don't actually care about this because yeah. for me, it would just be such an immaterial amount of money that I don't really care. Um, you know, if I'm getting 20 bucks a year from all the recruiters who are spamming me, it, I don't care. I'd rather just not get the, the spam. But that's not in general true for everybody. I think there are a lot of people for whom they, they would care a lot and they would find the service much more pal uh, palatable if in fact they were actually getting some of the value that LinkedIn is collecting in the middle. Um, those I'd say are the biggest things about LinkedIn that annoy me, but I could, I could keep going if I pulled the site up. So tell me about uh, Discord or Telegram. Do you use, uh, I'm guessing you probably use more Telegram. I do, I use both, but more Telegram than Discord. Okay, yeah, so tell me what do you not like about those? I mean, one thing that annoys me, Telegram does not have uh, general 2FA, which I think is pretty ridiculous. So there's no, you can't use Authenticator or something to mm. secure your Telegram, which leads to a lot of people on Telegram getting hacked. So that I'm not a fan of. So if you're doing feature requests. I find it like so hard to navigate. Like, there are so many people that are in my contacts that shows me. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and I'm like, I don't want, I just want to see the people that I want to see. So, so yeah. curation is. is I'm also, yeah, exactly. Curation. I'm in a lot of groups and managing lots and lots of groups is very challenging on Telegram. Um, especially, you know, as a VC, our Telegram workflows are also pretty unique. So I can imagine this is not a very typical thing, but you know, we have a bunch of Telegram chats with different companies that we've invested into and just trying to navigate all of them and get all of them in the right place. Or like this person left the company, so we have to move them out of all these. And it, it, it's it's not a tool that is built for that kind of workflow. So considering that uh, Web3 technology allows us to authenticate people with their wallet addresses and, and know who they are. So one of the things, for example, that we are working on is Let's say if you are if you work uh, with a specific NFT community, like say World of Women, like you work with them, like you're the team, mm -hmm. and then you are also part of the team of Moonbirds, and you're part of the team of this other thing. Because of your wallet, we would know that you are indeed who you say you are. So you connect your wallet, and because the token that's in your wallet, you know, and that will allow us to then enable communication between these wallets the holders of those wallets, because we know to the best of our knowledge that, that they belong to those people. You know, what I'm trying to get at here is that I'm trying to get away from the use case of Web3 technology from a just number go up. I'm trying to use the actual technology. So another another case use case is for verifiable credentials, but we, I'm going to come to that for a second. But mm. how can we use this technology to improve communication between humans and better coordinate the communication. Yeah. So identity has long been one of the holy grails of crypto and Web3. And I, I, I think, you know, you, you mentioned Telegram before. Telegram themselves are working on using the Telegram open network to try to create a convergence between your Telegram identity and a crypto identity. Um, a lot of different people are trying to make a play at this and figure out who can build the decentralized identity layer that ends up becoming dominant and widespread. 
um, Worldcoin, there's you know Quadrata, there's a bunch of other names that are trying to do this. Either one, creating a digitally native identity or connecting your identity to your real world identity and creating some sort of proof of humanity or proof of KYC or whatever. The reality is that um, there is no single standard that is winning yet. It's still quite early. And in order for there to be a standard that succeeds, the history of technology tells us is that it's likely going to be accelerated by a particular application. There's going to be some killer app that uses a certain identity standard that everybody rallies behind and says, okay, I'm going to get on this identity standard so I can use this app. And once that happens, then that's going to create this tremendous um, platform for everybody else to use that can piggyback on this identity layer that's been co-opted, right? So in many ways, the um, you know Google services are what really created Google OAuth and made Google OAuth so widespread is that almost everybody wanted a YouTube account, a Google Maps account, a Gmail account, and therefore now, great, you have a, a form of identity that you can port with you throughout the entire internet. And the same thing, I think we're, we're waiting for that moment in Web3 of when is that application going to show up that's going to crown one particular form of on-chain identity to be the predominant leader. Once that happens, I think there's a lot of stuff that's going to get opened up from having that digitally native identity. But we're, we're not there yet. And as a VC, I'm constantly looking for what is going to be that application that galvanizes well, the single identity standard. That's super interesting. So where I'm coming at that same problem is rather than trying to create a layer of identity directly is to build that identity around communities. Because, you know, in, in Web2, in web it was like, the whole premise of Web2 was around following. You remember MySpace, right? And then people started to game the system and, and show that they had a lot of followers. So the whole premise of Web2 social media was that you are a creator or, or influencer, and then there are people following you. In Web3, we are turning that on its head in that it's no longer necessarily about how many followers you have. It's about how many people you have in your community. And the difference between the community and the followers is that the community is not just an audience. Because they hold your token, they, um, they have a share. You know, they're, they're essentially a stakeholder in, in, your, uh, in your success. So you build the success together. And I think that's beautiful. Of course, it's also, um, it can be a nightmare because if the community can take you up and the community can bring you down. I feel that I, I missed the boat on Web2 getting into, you know, building in, in that time. That's because I originally come from Iran. And at the time when Zuckerberg was building Web2, I was trying to get out of forced marriage in Iran. You know, so I didn't, yeah. So, so I was right. like, I was trying to leave the country and all that stuff. And when Web3 came along, I was like, this is my moment because I really deeply understand this space and where this is going right. and and i feel like you know this is the next moment and the digital identity um is something that's deeply interesting to me because of also of my background and i feel like mm -hmm. this this new digital identity is going to allow us to to really innovate here to me i feel mm -hmm. like your digital identity is not one thing uh, you mm -hmm. know like i i don't think it's necessarily like the LinkedIn model or the Google model. I think the next iteration of it is going to be based on a combination of data points that uh, come from all of the different communities. And I think with Web3 technology and NFT communities, we saw a small sparkle of what that could look like. 
Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's so small right now. You know, I, I had a look at on YouTube, there are over 50 million creators. And on LinkedIn, there are over 58 or so million companies. So I think that mm -hmm. in, in the future, companies and creators, they, they become essentially one thing. Like basically they merge into this community leaders, community projects, you know, that in Web3, we call them projects. So I think that this new layer of digital identity will need to be built around the concept of there's going to be community and then there's going to be the community leaders. And then there are tokens that connect these together. And, and those tokens become the data points that create the next digital identity. That's what I think. I look, I, I agree with your view in that there's a different form of engagement that Web3 facilitates, very different from the, you know, I think the way that uh, Chris Dixon puts it very well is that, you know, Web2, Web1 was read-only, Web2 was read-write, Web3 is read-write-own. And when you have the ability to own a stake in the content you're consuming, the communities you're a part of, the creators you're supporting, then all of a sudden your, your form of, your relationship becomes very different, right? In the same way that uh, when you are a citizen of a government or of a city or of a state, you have an interest in what happens to the tax dollars of your country or the tax dollars of your state or the tax dollars of your city. You have an, a voice, you have an ability to influence the outcome. And it might not be significant if you're just a single person, like, yeah, okay, you're, you're one person, you're not gonna be able to swing the vote of whether or not you know the state goes red or blue. But it gives you the ability to create a cascade, to, to, to let your voice be heard and have that legitimacy as a member of this community or as a member of this society or a member of this country. And the, the, the difference between those who do not have voice and those who do is all the difference in the world when it comes to whether you as a creator need to listen to your community. If your community is a bunch of random kind of, uh, you know, sort of disembodied uh, YouTube comments, then whatever, you know, just ignore them. What, what, what do they have to say? But if you know that, oh, wait, these people are my stakeholders, these people, if they do not support the decisions that I'm making or the content I'm creating or the messages I'm putting out there, um, then they're going to go elsewhere. The, this community is going to reject me. Um, that more concrete relationship between the creators and the community members is a lot of what Web3 makes more real, more physical, more demonstrable. Uh, that I think is very powerful. Now, I agree with you, we're at the early stages of it and there's a lot to figure out and there was a lot of stupid stuff that was tried and there's gonna be a lot more iteration where um, all this stuff lives, but it's definitely going to have an impact into how creators think about their relationship with the consumers of their content. Yeah, definitely. So, okay, one last question, because I know that you have a hard stop. As an investor right now, when you look at mm -hmm. the Web3 space, what excites you most? What area are you personally looking at? Is it the financial? Is it like the financial rails? Is it like the, the hard kind of the protocol layer? Is it uh, the social? Um, what, what area are you mostly looking at right now? So you know, Dragonfly, we're a large team. We have a lot of different partners who look at different things. My specialty is around pure technology. So I was a technologist by background. And so a lot of where I spend my time is looking at what is going to be the next generation of layer ones, of layer twos, of privacy, of interoperability. How do these core science problems 
that are really lying underneath blockchains? How do they move forward into the next decade? Right now, you know, Ethereum, it's great. It can do about, you know, 15 to 20 transactions per second. That's way too small to be able to support the next internet. So the reality is that one way or another, whether or not blockchains are going to be the thing that everyone uses for everything or not, doesn't matter. What, even what they're used for in the last couple of years, 15 transactions per second is just not enough. Uh, that's a lot of what I spend my time on. But mm-hmm. as a firm, we look at a lot of different things, whether it's social, whether it's financial rails, whether it's DeFi, whether it's NFTs. You know, as Dragonfly, we're, we're full stack investors. Um, and ultimately, we believe that the industry is not going anywhere. Right? Yeah. Whether or not you know, SBF was a giant fraud or whether or not you know, the SEC doesn't like this or that, Web3 is not going to go away. This is, a, this is a concept that is here to stay. Just a question of how and when does it uh, end up kind of finding its way into people's lives. And you, uh, I remember, uh, I think you were on Bankless where you were talking about the future being multi-chain and that these chains are like uh, cities, uh, all that stuff. So, mm-hmm. so you do, you firmly believe in not putting all your uh, uh, eggs in one basket. There is going to be different, different winners in, in the space, right? Well, at the time that I was saying that, I was almost making a prediction. Today, I mean, look around. Is there only one chain? No. Yeah. Like there, there is no question. There's no debate anymore. We do live in a multi-chain world. Of course we do. So yeah. the only question is which chains and what is going to be the degree of concentration among those chains. But the question that I was originally answering on that podcast of is the future going to be multi-chain? We, we are already given the answer. We are there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been great uh, conversation. Thanks for having me, Somi. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Hasib Qureshi. Be sure to follow him on Twitter if you haven't already. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to it on Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to give it a five-star rating and write a review. The full interviews are also available on my YouTube channel, The Somi Aryan Show.